welcome back to Dreams of the Past podcast. Um, we left off part one. We're really excited to dive into part two with you. If you guys haven't heard part one of this episode, we recommend you go back and listen to part one before you dive into this one, just because the conversation really picks up where we left off in the last episode. We'll leave a link to that episode in the description, and we'll also have a link to our full episode list in case you want to go back and start from the very beginning. All right, so welcome back, and let's dive into it. So I guess I should go on with my next favorite episode. Yes, sorry, I was getting a cheese curd. (laughs) No worries. (laughs) are delicious. So this category is favorite meta episodes (laughs) because Supernatural has several and the meta-ness of Supernatural is one of my favorite aspects of the show. It's completely independent of the structure of the show. There's no reason that the show has to be meta whatsoever, but when it does, it's truly delightful. I think I have an inkling what episode you picked for this. (laughs) (laughs) I told you I wasn't going to do French Mistake, though I did think about that. So honestly, my favorite meta episode is Monster at the End of This Book, Season 4, Episode 18. Oh, for sure you would go with the play one. Oh, yeah. Well, I've only only seen it once. I saw it with you. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's what, Season 8? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And... You know, the play one was fine, but, like, honestly, Monster at the End of This Book has a lot of really great stuff in it. Yeah, it is Um, really good. It introduces so much stuff, and it's really a way for the creators of the show to, (laughs) to just talk to the fans and be like, yo, what is, what is wrong with you fans? (laughs) Like, (laughs) there's so much, like, the monster at the end of this book, yeah, sure, you introduce Chuck as the prophet, and he has some plot relevancy later, but there were a lot of different ways to introduce him. And the fact that they chose to make a supernatural book series in the actual universe of Supernatural says so much about the creators of the show. Yeah. <laughs> holy crap they they wrote themselves in to the story like it's it's amazing it's also there are like individual bits that like even beyond just the supernatural books like they talk about wincest which Mm -hmm. is a completely unnecessary thing they could have done the entire book thing without ever bringing up wincest but they do and they bring it up and they're like this is so bewildering we don't understand it like why is this a thing it's just it's it's hilarious that they even like bothered to to address it in an official capacity it's kind of mind-blowing like and it's it's a fun episode if you're a fan of the show and you've been watching the show up to this point and you just get this like self-referential stuff that's so hilarious and there's a lot to be said about becky rosen and it's not and she's not the best character and there's a lot of critiques I could make of her, especially in season seven, It's Time for a Wedding, which has Leslie Oldham Jr. in it. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. Uh, <laughs> oh, he's in Hamilton. It's just, oh, okay. All right. Yeah. 
uh, it's just like random. Like I went to go see Leslie Oldham Jr. in concert like last month, and it was so funny because I'm like, he's like, oh, like he's been fa- he's famous for a lot of different reasons. He's got a band. He was in Hamilton, mostly his musical career. But he shows up and he's like, oh, you might know me from this Hamilton thing. And I'm like, I'm th- sitting there thinking, I know you from Supernatural. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, I bet you never expected this. <laughs> You're one fan from Supernatural. Huh? The fact that Leslie Oldham Jr. was in an episode of Supernatural is also mind blowing. Like, it's, uh, yeah, it's, um, <laughs> I can see that you have no words. I have no words. <laughs> There's yeah. a crossover point for Hamilton and Supernatural. Yeah, just ponder that. Um, anyway, back to the actual thing we're talking about. So the, the monster at the end of this book is a completely unnecessary episode. It's compl- like every single aspect of it is completely unnecessary. There were a lot of ways to introduce Chuck as a as a prophet, the fact that they chose to just do this meta stuff and like just go so hard into the meta, which they do with later episodes like The French Mistake and um, what if the, the one where they have the play is, but mm-hmm. all of that is, it stems from this like first decision to yeah. add in a meta element and it's so delightful. Yeah, I mean, yeah, this is like, this has become one of the hallmarks of Supernatural, right? That it's very meta. Um, And that it has episodes like The French Mistake that, like, I can't think of another episode of another show currently on TV that would even dream of doing something like The French Mistake. Right. It's referencing um, a scene in Blazing Saddles, apparently, which I did not know. I've never seen Blazing Saddles. Um, So it's not like it's the first visual medium to ever break the fourth wall, that's for sure. Um, Community did a lot of really great fourth wall breaking stuff um, that was really enjoyable. But I... There are very few TV shows that have gone as far as Supernatural in breaking the fourth wall. Yeah, and I think, like, I don't mean this in a negative way about Supernatural, but when Community would do it, they would do it in a much more clever way. Oh, yeah, yeah. Community was a brilliant TV show, like... (laughs) Yeah, it was either, like, more subtle or more to make a point. Like, it was very deliberate and pointed when they did it. And that's not what Supernatural does. Supernatural is, like... This is fun, so we're going to commit to this. And yes. we don't care if you think it's silly. And we're going to make fun of our fan base, kind of? They, they knew at that point that the, the main like bulk of their fan base was teenage girls. And they yeah. s- still took time out of their day to like make fun of their fan base and be like, what the hell, guys? <laughs> we don't understand you. We're like older men. We don't get it. <laughs> I remember at the time, like, there was, like, a real divide between people who were happy to see fandom on the screen and people who were upset by the way it was portrayed. But I think ultimately, like, it did a lot of good for Supernatural because it kind of changed the way people thought about the show and the way the show interacted with its fans. Mm. Um, sorry, that's that's going, like off into a different realm than the actual meat of the episode. Yeah, no, but I think that, like, if we're going to discuss the monster at the end of the book, 
of this book, it's important to sort of point out the the interaction that Supernatural had with its fans because that's really what this episode is about. It's a way for Supernatural to talk directly to the fans and to give them sort of space in universe in the form of Becky Rosen, which again, <laughs> Becky has some serious flaws as a character. I'm personally not a fan of Becky, <laughs> but it definitely, it's so much fun. This episode is just like, you know what? We can make fun of ourselves, which is a very endearing quality. And that's echoed in the French mistake where they definitely make fun of themselves a lot. <laughs> I don't know. I've always really enjoyed, like it's that, that episode is such a delight to watch. Like the monster at the end of this book, you watch it and you're like, wait, what? Really? They're going to do that? What? Oh, okay. They're doing it. Oh my gosh. This is the best thing ever. It just, it's, it's so much fun to watch if you're a fan of the show. I think like in that sense, it kind of reminds me of, I know this is not something you've seen, but it reminds me of Buffy's musical episode. Mm-hmm. And that it, like, yes, there are like some plot things going on, but mostly this is just like a treat for the fans, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And it's it's nice when shows do that, especially when, because Supernatural is really, tries to be gritty a lot of the time and it doesn't, I mean, yeah, it doesn't always hit the serious tone when it's aiming for, um, but it is overall a serious show. It's not meant to be a parody show or a comedy show or anything like that. So mm-hmm. it's really fun when it can take a break from being serious and make some fun of itself because it's like there are very few serious shows that actually do that like could you imagine like csi or something doing that like (laughs) like it just it wouldn't happen it's not common on tv and honestly like i can't think of another tv show that does meta the way supernatural does like it's just its own thing like supernatural i think is the is clearly the king of making like some really really intense fourth wall breaking episodes. Yeah, <laughs> fourth wall like the French mistake. <laughs> yeah, they literally jump through a window to get into like it's like literally they're breaking the fourth wall into the new universe. Right. It's so good. Ah, Jensen Ackles playing Dean Winchester playing Jensen Ackles playing Dean Winchester is like ah <sighs> It's so good. And like them pretending to be shitty actor. It's just that, that scene is so deeply uncomfortable and also so funny. Yeah. Uh, I like how yeah. I got a two for one here where I like got to talk about the monster at the end of this book and also the French mistake. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> if we're talking about meta, it's gonna come up. <laughs> I know. And we didn't even talk about the one where they go to the supernatural fan convention. It's been a while since I've seen the monster at the end of this book, but yeah, it's a good one. It's it's one of my all-time favorites, hands down. Yeah. Also, one of my favorite, like, just if I were going to present a screenshot of Supernatural to somebody who'd never seen the series, one of my favorite screenshots is where Sam and Dean are talking to the publisher, and she's like, how do I know you're really fans? And they pull down their shirts to show off their, like, anti-possession tattoos. <laughs> and Dean's face in that scene is priceless. <laughs> anyway, I don't really have much 
commentary to make on the monster at the end of this book because it's just a really fun episode and I just really enjoy it and I appreciate that Supernatural has, is so meta. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's uh, It does a good job. So I guess we're on to my last one third and final (laughs) Mm -hmm. i'm so curious yeah Yeah. so this was this was another one where i kind of had a decision to make i decided for my third category i would do like storytelling or literary in air quotes merit (laughs) um not to sound like overly pretentious or anything Mm -hmm. uh But, like, you know, like, if I was going to show Supernatural to my friend who's an English professor, like, what episode would I show to her in that capacity? And so this is the one where I was looking at lists online of what other people have said are the best episodes. Uh Uh-huh. Just so I could, like, make sure there wasn't anything obvious I was missing. Mm -hmm. And it seems like everyone and their mother has ranked Swan Song as the best episode of Supernatural. I, I was really it. tempted. I was really mm-hmm. tempted to go in that direction. I rewatched it and it was like, yeah, this is really good. But I remember when it came out, like there was a lot of controversy about it being kind of schmaltzy. Like it is, it's like very like on the nose. It's a good final episode, but mm. it's not super interesting yeah it's like mostly it takes the crescendo that the series is going to and delivers Mm -hmm. well but unless you had followed it all the way to that point it wouldn't have nearly as much meaning yeah so instead i bid on a dark horse oh my category is also dark horse like the (laughs) third one is dark horse literally i'm so excited <laughs> nice it's gonna be better than mine no but when i say dark no. horse i li- i legit mean like you would have not believed i would pick this episode okay okay I'm, like, I'm curious okay like, okay so i bid on a dark horse and picked a different season finale because i agree that the season finales are like the best and I'm going with No Rest for the Wicked, which is the season three finale. Ooh. Which is when Dean goes to hell. Mm-hmm. And the number one reason I ultimately picked this episode is because I was comparing it and Swan Song and thinking about themes and ideas and character development and arcs. And finally, I was like, okay, but, like, how did I react to these the first time I saw them? Mm-hmm. I was like, okay, Swan Song, like, yes. It was really, like, satisfying and good. But the first time I saw No Rest for the Wicked, that scene where they sing Journey in the car, I cried. Yeah. No, I get it. Yeah. That's fair. And, like, I'm not, you know, you know, I'm not a crier. Yeah, yeah. I can count on one hand the number of films and TV shows that have made me cry. And... It is it is Lonesome Dove, hmm. The Bucket List, Bridge to Terabithia. I don't oh, know if yeah. you remember, I like sobbed in oh, no. I, when we were at the theater. Oh, God. Like, I don't think, I like drowned in my own tears when we watched Bridge to Terabithia. If you don't cry when you see Bridge to Terabithia, you don't have a soul. I'm sorry. Like, <laughs> uh, and, and No Rest for the Wicked. Like, 
that's it. Those are the only, well, okay. Titanic did make me cry once, but it was when my leg was broken. I was on the good drugs and I was on my period. So we're not. That. <laughs> okay, that's fair. Yeah. Yeah. No rest for the wicked is a very good episode. Yeah. The, when they're singing in the car, that's definitely, especially because they like, they start going. And I love that song. Yeah. I love that song so much. But also, like, especially because they start out and, like, Dean really starts it. And then Sam's sort of getting into it and, like, clearly is, like, using it to sort of distract himself. And once Dean's gotten Sam distracted, he sort of trails off and you just see this, like, distance in his gaze. And you're like, ugh, Dean. <laughs> yeah. yeah and, and the way that they're, like, all struggling with this right Mm -hmm. um and throughout the season and the episode dean's put on a really strong front he's like Mm -hmm. i've accepted this it's happening it's gonna happen like you need to move on i'm okay Mm -hmm. basically and then at the last minute he's like i don't want to die Mm -hmm. oh dean yep yep and also i um I really appreciate the sort of camaraderie between Bella and Dean there at the end. Like, we get a little... Ruby and Dean? No, Bella. Bella's not in this episode. She's already dead. Oh, I'm thinking of the episode beforehand. Oh, uh-huh. Sorry. Yeah. Never no, mind. it's okay. I know what to expect with Dean because we've seen what happened to Bella. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, like the way Dean and Ruby interact in this episode... Where Ruby says that she wouldn't wish what's going to happen to Dean on her worst enemy. Mm-hmm. And I really feel like she's being honest in that mm-hmm. moment. Maybe, yeah. like, it's one of the few points in the series where I honestly 100% believe what Ruby is saying. Yeah, which is rare for Ruby. Well, yeah. I mean, everything we've ever been told about hell in the supernatural universe is, like, it's so bad demons don't want to be there. Like, demons are constantly trying to escape from hell and leave hell and not wanting to go back. So that Ruby would say that is not particularly surprising. Yeah. The way Dean just wants, like, Dean doesn't want to risk Sam in this final moment, Mm -hmm. right? Or Bobby. He feels very strongly that if it's not a sure bet, they shouldn't do it. Mm-hmm. And Sam's like, I'm going either way. And that's what forces Dean to go. Mm-hmm. And I think that moment where Sam is like, I'm going either way. And Dean's like, well, then I have to go too. It's like, well, tomorrow, Dean won't be able to go. Mm-hmm. Tomorrow, Sam has to go on his own no matter what. Mm-hmm. And just the way Sam is struggling with Dean's impending death throughout the episode really gets me. But what gets me even more is the way Dean and Bobby struggle with it. The way that they're trying to come to terms with this at the last minute. Mm-hmm. The last minute hope followed by the utter despair of their failure. Mm-hmm. I think it's quite interesting. Like, obviously, the uh, Supernatural show creators had an overall plan for how they were going to bring Dean back. But 
the fact that their plan does fail and that Dean goes to hell, I think is a pretty bold choice because it's essentially saying like there are some things that the Winchesters who are continuously been portrayed who have continuously been portrayed as these really badass competent people mm-hmm. there are a lot of things that they can't actually fix and it's i think it's really important when uh media portrays people losing even when they are the protagonists because a lot of times like the protagonists get the happy ending or things work out for the protagonists in improbable ways but mm-hmm. in life that doesn't always happen and so it's really interesting to see media deal with those sort of worst case scenarios and for just deal with people failing yeah and i think one of the things i really appreciate about the first three seasons in particular there's a lot of failure (laughs) yeah there's a lot of failure i guess season two and season three in particular um i think this might be a function of the fact that you know at the time that supernatural was getting started like the cw was a struggling network in like fantasy drama tv shows weren't really in Mm -hmm. like the season two and season three finales really could function as endings to the whole show Mm. right like they wrap up in a satisfying way they deal with themes and ideas and recurring characters and whatever the current big bad is um and they they leave room for like whatever comes next uh but you know, you could watch seasons one through three and end there. Mm-hmm. And it, it would be an emotionally satisfying narrative. Right. Especially because season two, Dean dies, or season two, Sam dies, and then season three, Dean dies. And it's got this, like, a sort of symmetry to it. And mm-hmm. in season one at the end of season one arguably john dies so like you've got this like in the first three seasons you've got this sort of symmetry of one of the winchesters dying each uh season Mm -hmm. Uh, though of course like mary dies in the first season so i guess that doesn't quite work out but (laughs) still it's it's uh it sets up this this narrative of loss and sacrifice and sacrificing oneself for other people and it I think it's also really significant, like you said, that Dean, despite the fact that he puts up a strong front for most of season three, cracks there at the end because it, it's so it's so understandable. Like, of course he doesn't want to die. Like, yeah, he made that choice and he would probably make that choice again to s- sacrifice his life to save Sam. It's a very big difference between, like, stepping in front of danger, in immediate danger towards somebody you love and knowing that in a year you're going to have to deal with the consequences of your actions. Yeah. And the, the last minute storming of the house, Mm -hmm. it's like, it makes me feel the same way the end of Butch Cassidy and the Sundance kid makes me feel. Uh, And I mean that, not as like a direct comparison. I don't mm-hmm. think that the 
the directors were like echoing that intentionally or anything mm-hmm. like that, but as high praise, <laughs> <laughs> like that is considered like one of the best endings of any movie. Um, mm-hmm. And, and I feel the same way when I watch this episode mm-hmm. um, where it's, it's terrible and it's sad and they tried so hard and failed at the last minute. Mm -hmm. And yet it's so, in so many ways, it's really satisfying, Mm -hmm. right? Because it's told a complete story and now that story has come to its end Mm -hmm. and there's only one inevitable conclusion And at the end of the day, our heroes are just people like us. And no matter how strong and badass they are, no matter how much they struggle, there are some things you just can't beat. Mm -hmm. Be it, you know, the Bolivian army or, Mm -hmm. well, (laughs) (laughs) sorry, I just, it gets me. Mm. so good. No, I think that's, I think that's, uh... I, it's been a very long time since I've seen Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, but I'm I'm willing to take your word for it. <laughs> um, it's got similar. It definitely has some similar emotional beats, and yeah, I definitely just agree with the like the concept that it does put a very final touch on the season and the series up to that point, even though it's not the end of the series by a long stretch. Yeah, and it leaves room for season four and season five. Like, it doesn't feel like a betrayal of that ending when we pick up in season four. Mm-hmm. Because it's... Because yeah. it's, like it's like an act of God that Dean was rescued, quite literally, right? It's not like, oh, they strived and they didn't... They were lazy and they forgot something obvious and somebody fa- figured that out for them. It's like, no, they did the best they could and they failed anyway, but because of something miraculous, like right. they get to start again. Right. And that's all been sort of foreshadowed in the first three seasons. So it, like, it's not just coming out of nowhere, mm-hmm. you know, it's like, okay, it might be, deus ex machina but it's like deus ex machina that we like could kind of see being built so yeah yeah exactly it's like the set dressing yeah yeah it's a good episode that's about all i have to say it's really good i have a lot of emotions when i watch it mm-hmm. um i think it does a really good job of dealing with the overall themes that the show has been dealing with up until that point wrapping things up um, and providing us with a really satisfying ending while still leaving room for the show to continue to grow. Mm-hmm. So, also, my last one is in the dark horse category. But if you want high literature, Sun- Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, <laughs> I want low literature. Okay. So, my choice for the dark horse category is Live Free or Twy Hard, <laughs> episode five. <laughs> and I would like to make the caveat that even though this is supposed to be one of my favorite episodes, and yes, it kind of is, I remember really, really enjoying this episode when I first saw it. 
I think there are better episodes of Supernatural out there. Mm-hmm. But uh, as far as Dark Horse goes, I know you weren't expecting that. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. <laughs> never. Mm-mm. Yeah. I told you. Never, <laughs> never in a million years would you have guessed that I picked this episode. No. I kind of thought... So based on the conversation we had a couple days ago where we carefully talked around mm-hmm. what episodes we were thinking of, I kind of thought you might pick Red Sky at Morning. Oh, yeah, which is a good episode and also one of my, like, Dark Horse favorites. That's fair. Um, yeah, but I was trying to do episodes we hadn't done before. Okay. Okay, that's fair. Yeah. That's fair. Live um, for your tryhard. Tell me more. Ah, so the reason I really like this episode is it's the first time that Dean or Sam gets turned into a monster. Mm-hmm. Like, explicitly turned into a monster. And um, there's a lot you can be said about Solus Sam or later episodes with, like, Mark of Cain and Demon Dean and all that sort of stuff. That hasn't happened yet. Um, Shenanigans. Is, yeah. And even with, like, Sam drinking the demon blood, like... He's he's definitely treading that line, but this is the first time that something that's probably pretty reasonable to happen to hunters, which is one of them gets turned into a vampire, happens mm-hmm. to Dean. And I think it's really interesting because it really um, it really goes back to this question of why do Sam and Dean have the authority that they do, and are they morally allowed to? kill creatures just because they're non-human and this is a conversation that we had last episode and I think that it's um, this one is interesting because it explores it in just a very different way than any of the other episodes have to this point mm-hmm. also I um, with all due respect to Twilight fans I am not a Twilight fan and the, um, the contrast between the supernatural uh, universe's version of vampires, Twilight version of vampires, is how frickin' hilarious. <laughs> the opening scene of this episode is a girl whose name is Kirsten <laughs> meeting up with a boy whose name is Robert, on the nose, Supernatural, on the nose. <laughs> In Supernatural a is not interested in subtlety. Oh, no, not at all. <laughs> and they, like, reference Patterson and Lautner and, like, all the like they're they're not being subtle about what they are referencing at all. <laughs> they don't call it Twilight by name, but like literally everything that's not like immediately taped down by copyright law is fair game for them. <laughs> and so like the the opening scene is just amazingly gorgeous in its parody power. Like it's got this like clumsy very cute girl who's like talking with this boy and he's uh acting for her benefit because he's gonna kidnap her later but like the opening scene is just so ridiculously hilarious as a parody (laughs) of the twilight phenomenon and is just so brilliant and it's also one of those things where it's like it kind of nudges up against the concept that supernatural is in a world very, very similar to our own, even Mm -hmm. though it is explicitly not. (laughs) Um, Because obviously something like Twilight 
exists in that universe. And Mm -hmm. um, it's kind of brilliant that, of course, the vampires in that universe would be taking advantage of that. If suddenly they became, like, really appealing to humans, of course they take advantage of that. And the overall, like, recruitment strategy that um, the main vampire in this utilizes makes a lot of sense. It's super fucking rapey, as Dean himself points out. But I mean, that's, like, vampires, though. So, yeah, yeah, vampires. And there's a lot of, like, sexual overtones to this episode. The main vampire dude clearly is hitting on Dean, like, mm-hmm. several times. Um, and it's interesting to sort of have that be in this episode. I mean, yes, yeah. vampires are definitely um, have a lot of sexual overtones. Um mm-hmm. It's interesting that sexuality plays such a prominent role in this episode. Um, and also, like, it's really interesting to sort of see uh, this is one, of, this is the first time that Soulless Sam really screws Dean over <laughs> <laughs> yeah. in a really, really significant way. And it's also, it comes back to this idea of Winchester exceptionalism, mm-hmm. although I guess it's more Campbell exceptionalism in this particular case because the Campbells <laughs> have this. Right. Recipe for this cure for vampirism, as long as the person hasn't drunk blood. It's like, what? You you didn't think that like telling other people about this would be helpful? Like, oh, Dean is the only person who's ever going to benefit from this like random vampire cure. Like, you you didn't think that you might advertise that or make that like better well known? Like, seriously? Yeah, that's so yeah. It has a lot of problems. This episode has a lot of problems. It's got some serious flaws and some serious like connotations that are not flattering for the Winchesters. But overall, I it is a very enjoyable episode. Personally, I think, especially because you get to see um, Dean dealing with the process of turning into a vampire. Um, so that's like a perspective we haven't ever gotten in this show. Um, and that's really interesting. We also have him at the end, taking out an entire coven of vampires, which is pretty damn badass. Yeah. <laughs> like, I'm all, I'm all for episodes that make Dean seem really badass, because I love when Dean's badass. So, like, that's a really, really enjoyable part, and I think that's what I, that's really what stood out in my mind as I remembered the episode. I was, and I was looking through the list of episodes, trying to figure out what my third one would be, and I saw it, and I was like, oh, I actually remember really enjoying this episode. And that's one of the reasons I enjoyed it. He just goes through, and he kills all these vampires, and it's, like, super epic and badass, and it's, like, very satisfying in a way. Um, yeah, I might, you know, I might have to watch this episode again because, so I watched it like when it came out and I haven't watched it since mm. because when I, so when I watched it, I know I shouldn't make these comparisons, but I did. When I was still in high school, I think the Dresden Files did the same thing. Boo, Dresden Files. And they boo. did it better. They did it better. Boo, Dresden Files. Boo. They did it better. <laughs> and the vendetta against Jim Butcher. <laughs> I really like the Dresden Files. No, The way the Dresden Files handles the, like, Twilight thing, I liked a lot better. I just like the Dresden Files vampires in general mm-hmm, better than, that. like, most versions of vampires in... Mm-hmm. Media. Uh, that's fair like but, I, 
like as you're talking about it it's like uh, like I should give this a second chance and try harder not to compare it to the dressing pile right I mean I think that's fair to say that like this like parody of Twilight or parody of vampires has been done better like what we do in the shadows is a way better vampire parody but I think that Mm -hmm. why this is an episode that really um sticks out to me despite it just being like a very goofy not really that much depth at first glance episode is that it is the first time we see either of the Winchester brothers turned into something that they have explicitly hunted yeah I think that they could have done more with that they sort of throw that out um and really don't examine the implications of that um in the same way like it's not like the episode with um Adam where they actually get to sort of examine a little bit through the dialogue like why are the Winchesters able to just kill creatures is that morally correct what about creatures that don't harm anybody else and that sort of thing and like that's been that uh conversation has been had in various episodes but this is the only one where like Dean explicitly gets turned into something and he's just like, you know what? You're going to have to kill me. Like, there's no two ways about it. I'm being turned into a vampire. Vampires don't really have a lot of um, fluidity in this universe. They're, they basically just have to feast on human blood. And it's interesting because, like, um, the organization of the coven that he um, ends up killing is one that, like, other than the fact that they're, they're literally their recruitment center and they're kidnapping girls unwillingly, which is not okay, like, the, they steal blood bank blood. And just like, oh, like, this is something that vampires in this universe could do that would be much more ethical than, like, killing random humans. Right. Um, like, and it's a lot ethical, but... Yeah, but it's, like, definitely better than, like, randomly killing people. Right. One could argue. Um, <laughs> I think. Um, I <laughs> yeah. And there's a lot of implications here that they don't pause to explore because they're more interested in the dynamics between Sam and Dean and Sam being Solus and the Campbells and all of that. Mm-hmm. But it's it has some really interesting things to think about when you dig in a little bit deeper into how does Dean deal with being a monster? And how does he deal with becoming the thing that he's been hunting for so long? And in a lot of ways, he's had to become a monster um, through his actions. But now this is sort of an unwilling change that's being thrust upon him. And it's very sudden. And it's something um, amazingly familiar because he knows a lot about vampires. And it's not like some sort of obscure, like angel thing or anything like that this is like really really fundamental to who the winchesters are he's become an enemy of that yeah yeah that's a good point i'll have to rewatch that episode mm-hmm. like also i think this is not really about the episode specifically but i think also like i've had to kind of get over a very negative knee-jerk reaction to things that dwell too heavily on Twilight. Mm. Um, I think in part because, like, like I was living in, like, the Mormon belt 
when Twilight was super popular mm. and there was a lot of social pressure to like Twilight. Ah, like see, when- I had like the opposite thing because I was living in the Pacific Northwest. Ah. It was very much like, we're not like that. Like, like yeah, maybe it rains here all the time, but that's not us. Like, mm, 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 mm. Like, I didn't want to read Twilight because like teen romance novels weren't mm. my thing and I was never really interested in vampires so like why would I um and eventually like I made a deal with a friend that I would read the first three Twilight books and she would read a book that I liked that I wanted her to read oh that's that's not a good exchange rate (laughs) no but to be fair the page numbers worked out to be about equal so okay (laughs) yeah I um I never actually read Twilight and I had a lot of negative feelings towards it for a very long time. And I think that uh, there are still a lot of valid criticisms. But I had a friend in college who was like, yeah, Twilight just really helped me through some shit. And I'm like, and um, that really made me realize like, oh, there are people who find value in it. And I shouldn't just shit on it necessarily because that's the popular thing to do. And so I think that I've I've just definitely tried to be a lot more nuanced in my understanding of people who actually appreciate and get some value out of it and while it definitely has some very troubling aspects it doesn't mean that everything about it is horrible yeah yeah I read the first book and I like couldn't make it through the second one so I just like gave up my friend never read the book um but yeah like I've had to like I've realized since like there's a lot of fair criticism floating around about how like oh, like, people uh, are really negative about Twilight because it's something that's enjoyed by teenage girls. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I've had to, like, like, on the one hand, I know that I felt so strongly about not liking Twilight as a reaction to a lot of people, like, really pressuring me to like it. Mm -hmm. And, like, people would get, like, angry with me Mm -hmm. when I would be like, oh, I don't, I don't really like Twilight. Yeah. Like, they would ask me, like, oh, you read a lot. Do you like Twilight? And I'd be like, oh, it's not my favorite. Like, I prefer things like this. And they would get, like, angry with me. Yeah, it's like when you talk in modern nerd circles and, like, around where I live about Harry Potter. If, like, you don't like Harry Potter, it's like you get exiled. It's like, what? Are you kidding me? Like, wow. I have lots of friends who haven't read Harry Potter or whatever. And I like Harry Potter. But I'm not about to go attack somebody because they didn't read Harry Potter. Like, yeah. yeah, it was exactly like that. And I've had to realize that, one, like, I think that reaction was largely because, like, this is such a heavily Mormon area. Mm-hmm. Um, and Mormons are, like, all about supporting each other. And so, like... Mm-hmm. Um, I think there was a lot of pressure from the Mormon community for, like, people to be positive about Twilight because it was written by a Mormon author. Mm-hmm. Um, and, like, that sounds sort of culty when I say it like that, but, like, they feel very strongly about their sense of community and supporting each other. Um, and And there were, you know, like, teenage girls don't really need an excuse to be catty with each other. Mm. Um, But I mean, like, it's also, it's interesting because 
um, Supernatural also has a reputation of being something that's very popular with teenage girls. Mm-hmm. And I really, I've always really enjoyed Supernatural and I don't feel particularly too bothered by that particular aspect of its reputation. But that was definitely something that turned me off of Twilight that it was something that was supposed to be for teenage girls. So I had a lot of, that was, that was in the point of my development where I was very strongly reacting against anything that was like, quote unquote, for teenage girls, even though this is around the same time I was watching Supernatural, so whatever, but like. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think like there is a difference though, right? Like things that are supposed to be from teenage girls and things that teenage girls actually like aren't necessarily the same thing. Yeah. People enjoy things for a myriad of reasons, and uh, nothing is perfect, and that you have to um, be critical of what you consume, but also mm-hmm. realize that you can enjoy things just for the sake of enjoying them. <laughs> like, I, on the one hand, I know that the reason I have such a strong negative reaction to Twilight, like, doesn't have to do with it being, like, for teenage girls so much as it has to do with my particular personal best defense is strong offense (laughs) sort of thing. Mm, Um, But at the same time, um, like, I really don't want to be aligned with the sort of people who, like, not like teenage girls who are rejecting Twilight because they don't, because they're dealing with their own stuff but like grown adults who uh rather than just being critical of twilight's flaws um, reject it at the people who like it yeah and so like because i don't want to align myself with myself with those people i've had to like try and be more moderate about it than you actually are yeah (laughs) yeah yeah, the thing about these, like, really big fantasy works of literature mm-hmm. came out when we were younger, like Harry Potter, like Twilight, like various other things. Artemis Fowl. Artemis Fowl. Yeah. A lot of people, especially when it comes to Harry Potter and Twilight, seem to have defined themselves in a lot of ways by being fans of that particular uh, body of literature. Which is not inherently necessarily a problem, but when it comes to like, I remember just talking to somebody the other day and like she brought up something about how she hadn't seen something or read something and then she just automatically said, sorry. And I'm like, why are you apologizing? <laughs> like, I mean, in the, the pendulum swing between basic and hipster, uh, like popular culture goes back and forth and it's, there was a, there was a period of time when we were a bit younger where it was, uh, ironically, very popular to be anti-popular culture. Mm-hmm. And that was how you demonstrated that you had good taste. And I think now the general consensus, at least among um, my friends who, who think about this often, is that, you know what, like, yes, you can have good taste and still enjoy popular things. <laughs> <laughs> I like I didn't like Harry Potter until you forced me to read the third book because we were going to the release party for the fourth book I think Mm -hmm. I didn't like Harry Potter but I liked like the third book was okay Uh I liked it a lot better than the first two and I loved the release party and like I became a fan of Harry Potter because I liked 
I didn't have a word for it at the time, but I, but because I liked the fandom. It's the same sort of gatekeeping that you would see in the nerd community, um, like back in the earlier days of the nerd community. But it's sort of as uh, nerddom, let's call it nerddom, nerddom. expanded to sort of be into popular culture with most people having heard of Harry Potter at this point. I think everyone's heard of Harry Potter. Mm-hmm. Um, and marvel cinematic universe like various other things it is in my experience very rare for somebody who wouldn't identify with something that is considered quote-unquote nerdy and i think that unfortunately as nerddom has expanded it has kept a little bit of that gatekeeping Mm -hmm. uh with it um despite the fact that like nerddom is basically popular culture at this point um it just uh i think that people get really defensive about things that they perceive to be instrumental in their own lives and mm-hmm. they whether they're conscious about it or not seek validation from others and when there's sort of the popular culture like scripted response of like oh i love harry potter then when somebody breaks that scripted response the reactions are usually pretty strong just because so many people define their self-worth based on their like their taste in media so (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah it ends up being like it creates this really shitty um situation where people can't actually be honest about what they enjoy Mm -hmm. and it's also worse I think for trying to really think critically about media because if you can't even say oh I don't really like Harry Potter you can't and people can't let you get past that statement, then you mm-hmm. can't get to the point where it's like, well, I don't really like Harry Potter because I don't think it does a really good job of representing people of color or the LGBTQ community or things like that. And it's like, okay, like there are valid criticisms there and there are things that we could probably examine and learn from. And if it just, we have this basic assumption about who likes what, then... Yeah, yeah. And I've definitely, like, caught myself a couple times. Like, there's someone I know and I'm friends with who's never read... Well, actually, I know two people who have never read Harry Potter. Mm-hmm. Um, but the second one, like, she's just never read Harry Potter because even though she likes to read, even though she likes fiction and fantasy, she just, like, doesn't want to. Yeah. And the first time she said that, I was like, Really? And, like, I had to stop myself. Be- I was just, like, so shocked. Like, even mm-hmm. as someone who doesn't, like, even now, like, I don't find the Harry Potter series particularly well-written. I mean, the, <laughs> the, the joy of the Harry Potter series is in its fandom and, well, some parts of its fandom. And also, let's be honest, it's in the fan fiction. Like, yeah. Some of the best fan fiction I've ever read is been Harry Potter fan fiction, just because there's so much of it, and with volume comes quality <laughs> some of the time. And so I like I could care less about the actual canon of Harry Potter. Like there there are fan fictions of Harry Potter that I've read that I enjoy way more than the original series. Like I I do think that the characters are very good, which is why the fan fiction is so good. Ron and Hermione are good characters. <laughs> Ron, and, Ron and Hermione are good characters. 
Luna's a good character. Ginny. Neville's a good character. Ginny's a good character. Yeah, that's fair. Molly Weasley is a good character. Mm, yeah. That, I, okay, I they're all... the whole Weasley family is very good. Even as someone who isn't like hugely in love with the Harry Potter series, I was just so shocked that someone hadn't read Harry Potter just because and they had no real plans to ever read Harry Potter. I was I was so shocked and so taken aback by that. You were shook. I was shook. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I have a friend like that as well. And you know what? I think if I was younger and less mature, I would be like trying to get her to read it. But now that I'm older, I'm like, you know what? You do you. Good for you. Like who really cares? So that was a really long oh, it was a really tangent. long tangent. I might edit out edit out a lot of it, but like I, most of it, like all of it, <laughs> maybe all of it. We'll see. We'll see how much survives. But I also I think that's like an interesting um, discussion that has absolutely nothing to do with supernatural. <laughs> no, <laughs> nothing at all. Nothing Not at all. Like it's we can't even book like fandom a- in the early two thousands. <laughs> yeah, like uh, I don't know. It's like. I see Harry Potter as, like, so fundamental to my development as somebody who is interested in fandom and, like, mm-hmm. like really strongly identifies with certain types of literature and that sort of thing. But, again, it's just the, it's just the Harry Potter fan fiction, not actually Harry Potter as canon. Right. Like, in a way, like, okay, this is how it relates back to Supernatural. Okay. We never would have watched Supernatural if it hadn't been for Harry Potter. Yeah, because Harry Potter is how we got into fandom. Yes. And fandom is what brought us to Supernatural. Yes, exactly. Anyway. Back to outro, I guess? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, so this was a lot of fun. Ah, Um, yeah. I love just, like, talking. It's, I definitely enjoy when we have, like, some meta-analysis to do, and, like, we, like, are really thinking about the episodes and what that what the episodes are saying and the implications thereof um but this was just really fun to just like you know what i like this episode i don't really have a good reason for it but i like it it's fun (laughs) yeah it was nice to just have this like super subjective like not super analytical just Mm -hmm. like just talking to you Yeah. yeah yeah so i hope you guys enjoyed uh our discussion about uh, quote-unquote favorite episodes of Supernatural. Uh, <laughs> certainly the dark horse category for me. I'm not going to be... I don't want to be um, held to court in saying that the Free or Twy Hard is one of my favorite Supernatural episodes ever. But I think that as far as the dark horse category goes, it's a fun one to to examine. Yeah. And we would love to hear from you about your favorite episodes uh, of Supernatural on Twitter or Tumblr, or you can even comment on iTunes, though I don't know if we know how to reply to iTunes comments, so I'm you sure might just I be could... talking to yourself there. <laughs> I'm sure I could probably figure it out. <laughs> I don't know. Sometimes Apple formatted things are kind of arcane for no good reason. But... I don't know. But Tumblr and Twitter, we'd love to hear from you. Mm-hmm. Um, we'd be excited to hear about what your favorite episodes are and why. And you can drop us an ask or just reblog this post with your favorites. I monitor our Tumblr and Twitter feeds. I check at least daily 
Um, you're also welcome to email us if that's your preferred form of communication and we would be happy to email you back. It might take me a little bit longer to get back to you via email though. So yeah. Uh, before our next episode comes out, keep an eye out for our first mini episode. We're going to publish one mini episode after about every three main episodes. And our first mini episode is going to be about Wyoming. So we're looking forward to talking about that. And we hope you are excited for that as well. Yeah, and thanks so much for joining us. Uh, we always have so much fun recording these, and we hope that you guys have as much fun listening to them as we do recording them. But in the meantime, I'm driving. <laughs> Dreams of the Past podcast is written, researched, and produced by Ray and Mish. You can reach them on Twitter at dreamspastpod, Tumblr at dreamsofthepastpodcast.tumblr.com, and email at dreamsofthepastpodcast at gmail.com. Dreams of the Past podcast is available on iTunes, Spotify, and SoundCloud. Please rate and review us. Thanks to Benjamin Geyer and Lynn Music for our theme song, Lonesome Ranger.